Hi, this is Pastor Corey. I hope this podcast will encourage you, strengthen your faith, and most importantly, help you draw closer to Jesus. Thank you for listening. We started a new series last week called Homemade Christmas. Kind of the idea was to show uh, that there is, there is value to things that are homemade and that we ourselves are even considered to be homemade by the Lord. And that when you look at things that are homemade, whether it's a rocking horse, a picture that's drawn by a child, or humanity itself, that the value of something that is homemade is not in its perfection or imperfections, but rather value comes from the passion behind it. And so this morning, I want to go, we, we started with kind of an odd Christmas scripture, John three sixteen last Sunday. Today, we're going to go with traditional Christmas scriptures. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, and then we're going to read Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there. We're going to read through the traditional Christmas story, or at least part of it, and then we'll tackle next Sunday the rest. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, this is kind of the beginning of the whole Christmas story. The scriptures say this, Now in the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent by God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth. Everybody say Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to a man, meaning she was engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you, blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his sayings and considered what manner of greeting this was. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the highest and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. And then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? That word know, if you've been around, you've heard me explain, is in the original language the word for intimacy. Being intimate with a man. Verse 35, and the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. And now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Just a quick glimpse into what we finished our last series on. What did the angel use to encourage Mary for what was ahead of her? The testimony of her cousin. And she will bring forth a son and you shall call it, or where am I at? Then Mary said, behold, the maidservant of the Lord. She's, she's stoked now, right? She knows Elizabeth is having a kid too. Then Mary says, behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let, me, let it be according to your word. And the angel departed from her. That's one side of the story that I wanted us to look at this morning. That's the mom's side of the story. The other side of the story is the father's side of the story. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. And after his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph... Before they came together, meaning intimacy, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. 
But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. So he was going to, he could make her a public example or he could divorce her privately. And the angel said to him in this dream, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Verse 24, Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her, have intimacy with her, until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. I find it interesting that for many things in life, people view strength as coming through perfection. It, it comes through something that is well built, well built, right? Things that are well built, we think that has strength. Things that are well established, they have strength. People that are well versed, you look at them and you think they really have strength. And so value is often attached to this idea. You know, a few days ago I was out at Perfection Auto Body and I walked into the body shop and I was talking with Bob and there's this great big metal bumper that was up on the, up on the racks and it was by itself. And I was like, wow, this is a stout bumper. And he's like, oh, yeah, you should see these bumper. This place in southern Idaho, it's amazing that they're from Idaho. They make these bumpers, and they are put together so well. And I was looking at the front of them, and every little piece, like, had perfect welds all the way around them. I'm like, man, the guy who welds these has a lot of pressure because they're so, vis so, they're, they're so big, they're so visible, and it is a perfect weld all the way around. And so Bob starts telling me about this bumper and how unlike today's modern cars like you know if something hits that bumper that bumper is going to be what causes damage not be damaged right that it is it, it's a strong bumper and this guy puts them on every truck that he buys but Bob says it's not cheap right see perceived strength through perfection is most often considered valuable. Whether that's a stout bumper, a big old tough bodyguard standing next to you, a bass guitarist that plays with perfection, a basilica, if you don't know what that is, that's a, a Roman architecture, that's Roman architecture, that's what most churches are made out of. They're stout, they've lasted for literally some of them over 2,000 years, some of them thousands of years. Perceived strength through perfection is valuable. Or it could simply be a holiday like Christmas. Think about it. A white Christmas in the comfort and warmth of your home. Surrounded by family and, of course, food, is often considered the perfect holiday. And if we're all being honest, we all have this desire for a perfect Christmas. 
Otherwise, you know, the Hallmark's channel's perfect ending to every show wouldn't be so popular. And you keep watching them. There's always a kiss in the end and they make up, right? The celebration of Christmas, though, listen to this, has been going on for almost 1,700 years. The celebration of Christmas. And it survived several controversies, persecutions. There's been nations that have done all-out bans against Christmas over those 1,700 years. And it survived secularism. But ironically, it didn't survive or even grow in strength over those years because it's the perfect holiday. Rather, just the opposite. It is far from perfect. This morning, I want to talk about strength through imperfection, imperfect value. And I know if you've been around here a while and you've been through Christmas services, this is probably your annual reminder, but I'm going to bring it up anyways. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, as perfect as he was and is, was not born into a perfect world. The Christmas story is about imperfect people in an imperfect situation at an imperfect time. When it comes to just looking at the two that we read about this morning and imperfect people, Mary, now some traditional Catholics may argue this, from what I read, Mary was a good girl. She was favored and blessed, but there was only one that was born perfect, and that's Jesus. So she wasn't perfect. Mary was a young virgin. She'd never been intimate with a man. She was engaged, but not yet married, and now pregnant by someone else. And yet she was oddfully joyful about the whole situation, right? Like, to me, I would look and think, weird. (laughs) Definitely, from an outsider's perspective, she was imperfect in most people's eyes. And now Joseph, Joseph, he's a regular dude. He's a carpenter from Nazareth. Nazareth. Not exactly the father you'd probably choose for the king of kings. He he wasn't a priest. He wasn't a religious leader. He wasn't necessarily into any of the spiritual aspects of their culture. Like we believe that he was righteous, that he followed the law, that he did those things. But he was not a leader in those things. Like to raise the the son of God and and all of that, that you would pick a a carpenter and not a Pharisee, a Sadducee, or a scribe. One of those, those famous leaders that, you know, led groups of guys and taught them what Well, no, God picks a carpenter of all people. More than likely, and I've heard this argued, he wasn't more, more than likely he wasn't wealthy. He wasn't famous. He was a carpenter, probably not well off. And you get that idea because of where he came from. And then if you're going to pick somebody, you pick Joseph and because you think he's righteous, but Joseph almost dumps Mary. Like he was at the point of contemplating. If you read the story, he sat down to think about what he's going to do and how he's going to do it. The only decision that he didn't make was to keep her. In his mind, how does he eliminate this problem in his life? 
How does he get rid of or walk away from this problem in his life? Does he do it publicly because everybody else is probably going to know anyways, and so they're going to find out? Do I just publicly declare what happened, and then she's going to have to face the wrath of the community and the legal system, the religious system, and go through all of this stuff? Do I do it quietly? What do I do? And so he's sitting down contemplating this when he falls asleep, and then that's when the angel visits him and intervenes and stops Joseph from actually divorcing the mother of the child of God. I don't know about you, but when you look at the story, it seems like if you really read it and understand the details, there's a whole lot of drama going on. Too much drama in that family over there. Definitely could have been viewed as imperfect, an imperfect person, Joseph, an imperfect family, Joseph and Mary, put into an imperfect situation. And you think about the situation as a whole. You got two unwed parents. Now, in today's culture, that's not as bad as it was even 10, 20, 30 years ago. But if you imagine what it was like in the days of Jesus to have two unwed parents, they would have been outcasts. Again, they weren't, very, they weren't a very wealthy family. In fact, the town that they came from, it's questionable. It says in Scripture, I think by Nathaniel to Jesus, if there's anything good that could ever come out of such a town, Nazareth. I'm sure, like I said, that people in the community, when they heard about it, probably questioned the whole thing. Like, how well can they even take care of a baby? They're not married. He's just a carpenter. We live in Nazareth. They get consumed by their own thoughts and ideas about their own community, and they think that nothing good can really even come out of it. They probably believe in that about themselves. And so there's a question on the family and how they're going to raise the kid. And, you know, the whole situation seems kind of poorly planned, unnecessarily complicated. Definitely viewed as an imperfect situation if you were going to become married, have a child, and provide for that child. And the timing of it all. Imperfect timing. Contemplate that for thousands of years, God the Father had been declaring the coming Messiah through his prophets. Thousands of years they wrote about there's going to be a savior, there's going to be a coming Messiah. He's going to rescue his people, the Israelites. And, and I look at that and I think about every time that that was pronounced, like here's a birthday card for my son that's going to be born about a thousand years from now. He's been letting people know about it. And then when Jesus does come, it doesn't quite make sense. You've had a thousand years to prepare for the announcement to prepare the world for the coming of Jesus. And he chooses a time in humanity before humanity has even figured out how to take a picture, how to send a text message. Hey, my son was born, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, how to put a video on TikTok. Like there would have been a lot better time to announce the coming of the Messiah to the entire world. But he chose a time when none of that was available. And think about the practicality of the timing. 
Right before he's born, Caesar Augustus commands a registry so he can add more taxes to the people, to the entire Roman world, and they all have to travel to go back to their own hometown. Like, if God was really in control, if he was really the one that was going to make this work, wouldn't he have done it at a better time? And then, of course, right after they arrive, Mary goes into labor. Could they not have waited until she got back home, be a little bit more comfortable in her own home? And then Jesus has to be laid in a manger and not in the bed of his own home? Imperfect people in an imperfect situation and imperfect timing. Sometimes I think our familiarity of the story keeps us from fully comprehending that if you are the mom and dad in this scenario... If you're the one that's living this scenario, this is one bad moment in time after another. So we can get all religious because we've heard the Christmas story and we know the ending. And I want you to think about your own life. Like you're just a young teenager and you end up pregnant. Or you're the guy that ends up getting the girl pregnant. You're not married. Like, think about those circumstances, what it would be like in the 1950s, say. Just think whatever you think, how far back you have to go to imagine the community disliking you because of, of what's taking place in your life. Think about how you're going to have to deal with the situation and what people are going to think about the situation. And when you first find out the news, you probably think that's not really that great of news. And then when you think about how people are going to respond and what you're going to do, and then you decide, you know what, you're just going to push through and do what you think is the right thing to do. And then you start to push through, and then stuff like this happens where, you know what, we've got to all of a sudden travel and go through the uncomforts of travel on top of it. And so that's just another bad scenario in your life. And then you've decided that once you get to a certain place, you could stay somewhere but then when you get there there's nowhere to stay like it's not a good situation it's not good timing don't let the familiarity of the Christmas story lead you to believe anything else it was imperfect and you might get to a place where you think can it get much worse in my life oh yeah Herod's gonna want to kill your newborn On the surface, there's really nothing about the Christmas story that, that leads you to believe that it, it's the perfect holiday. It's far from perfect. But the strength of the story is what value comes out of the things that are often deemed to be imperfect. Imperfect people. Imperfect situations. And imperfect times. Think about some of the things that are considered to be the most valuable. A lot, a lot of people, well, the people when I was standing back came up to me today and said, wow, pastor, you look really nice today. I got a suit jacket for my daughter's wedding. Figured I might as well wear it once in a while. The truth is, purposefully, I, I wore these pants today. Now, I've preached in these pants many times before. What you don't know, this is probably going to be the last time that I wear them. They were my favorite pants that I wore. They're, they're probably more expensive than the jacket that I'm wearing. 
and I've worn them so much that what you don't see behind me is all of the stitches that I've had Karen Fuller do over the years and the patches that are come up around the backside. But what is valuable? It's interesting to me what is viewed as valuable is worn out jeans. Imperfect jeans. You think about things that are considered valuable in the world today, and you can start to look at some things and realize imperfection actually is viewed as valuable. You look at the idea of, of rustic things in homes, antiques. What are the most expensive coins that collectors want? Stamps and baseball cards, they're the ones that have errors. They were deemed imperfect in their time and what they were meant for what they were meant to be and that's what people want they want the imperfection and because people want the imperfection that it's given value I was watching the toys that made America has anybody seen this uh, so I watch I think it's on National Geographic channel and I always watch the the cars that built America, the foods that built America now. They have this special during this season called the Toys That Built America. And so I was watching that. And what caught my interest the most, and some of you probably are aware of this, is this spring, right? There, there was this guy. He was an engineer. Uh, he was a naval engineer, and his name was James so his job was to try and develop something that when ships go through rough waters, that the instruments would be able to stay in place and stay steady. And so he developed a spring that would hold those things. One day, it is believed or said or repeated in story after story, including the TV show, that the spring fell off of his desk. And when it fell off, how many sometimes feel like you fall off of something, right? Sometimes I think we need to think that we, we should live a slinky life. When it fell off, it came down to like a pile of books. It came down to another level, and then it landed on the floor, and it was upright. Its ability to keep bouncing, to keep springing forward, to keep moving when pushed over the edge is what made a simple spring with a basic action so valuable. Now understand this. The spring never worked out as it was intended to on ships. What it was originally created for, it was considered to be imperfect. However, what may have been deemed imperfect for a ship was perfect for children and adults. And it brought joy to millions over the last 60 plus years that it's been a toy called Slinky. And it is considered now amazingly valuable. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul, he's, he's on his second letter writing to a church that's had some issues. You see in 1 Corinthians, there's a lot of division that's been created. There's been some issues that he's tried to bring correction to. In 2 Corinthians, he writes to them again. 
he commends them in some areas and then he challenges them in other areas and he stands up to the authority that he's been given into their lives because they're questioning that authority, believing that, you know what, maybe he's not as good as some of the other apostles that have come through, potentially even inferior and deemed imperfect in some of their eyes. And so the apostle Paul writes in verses 7 through 10 about a thorn that uh, God has allowed to happen in his life that has kept him humble. The little thorn in his side. When he gets to verse 9, Paul quotes these words. That the Lord had said to him, because he asked him three times to remove the thorn from his side. But the Lord spoke to him about this issue. And he said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. It's caused some heartache, probably, some issues, some pain. There's a reason why Paul didn't want it in his life. Didn't want whatever it was that was, was going on, the spiritual battle that, had, he had, that was created through that. And God looks at him and says, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. In your imperfection. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast, Paul says, in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And then he begins to go on and boast about what he takes pleasure in. This is understandable, understandably where he's learned to have joy. Watch this in verse 10. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul's like, please take this weakness from me, God. Please take this, this imperfection in my life. It would be a lot easier if I didn't have to deal with the imperfect things that are going on right now in my life. And God says to Paul, no, there's these imperfect things in your life for a reason. I've allowed these things to happen for a reason. Not just one thing. Paul gives a list of multiple things that I think were pertaining. Like if this thing was gone, all of these things would be a whole lot easier in my life. And God says, no, you've got to go through this. Be, understand the grace that I've given you, that it is sufficient for the issue that you, you're dealing with, that you think if it was gone, life would be better, life would be perfect. I want you to understand my grace in this situation because it is through this imperfection, through this weakness, through the challenge that it creates in your life that my strength is shown. And so Paul, grasping that, says, fine then, I will find a way to somehow have joy in the midst of all of these things because your grace is with me, because it is your strength that gets me through them. I was, I was thinking about, obviously, the snow when I came up to pray. And none of that's in my sermon nor this. But I was thinking, isn't it funny, like, sometimes when it snows... I know many people, including myself, like sometimes it just changes my attitude. 
Like, I want to be happy. I want to be joyful. And like when the sun was out the other day and it was sun shining, that was one thing. But, you know, most days the snow brings a little bit of dreariness into my life. After all these years, I do want to be a snowboard, snowbird someday that would go to where the sunshine is in the winter and only visit occasionally. Like when I grew up, I was a skier from about four years old on. I loved to ride snowmobiles, all of those things. Today, it's just work in my life because I'm too busy. And then you have to go out and shovel. You've got to, you know, drive slower. You got all these issues that come with the snow, right? This morning I wake up, Stace says, there's quite a bit of snow outside on the ground. So right before we leave, what do I do? I got to go shovel the stairs and the sidewalk, and then I come in, and I'm all sweaty. I'm already dressed for church. I have to take off my shirt. I'm getting pretty intimate with you guys here. I ask my wife to take my notes and start waving the sweat off of my back, because once I start sweating, it ain't going to stop when I start preaching, so I got to put a jacket on. That's why I look nice today, all right? Like, I, I lack the joy for snow, and yet I know that we absolutely, positively need snow, and I want snow. I want to make sure that when we have summers in North Idaho, there's a reason for the beauty that we live in, and that we're able to enjoy that beauty in the summertime, and I don't want to have to inhale smoke throughout the entire summer. We absolutely, positively need snow. There's goodness that comes through the snow, but sometimes you got to go through the dreariness of things to be able to enjoy the beauty on the other side, and yet I've got such a bad attitude, real spiritual people will look at the distress of the snow and think, I'm going skiing, I'm going snowmobiling, and they'll turn it into something joyful, and that's where Paul wants us to get in life. Go skiing through those difficulties. Go snowmobiling through, through the humps and the challenges and the curves and the twists of life. I will rejoice in my weakness. Because it shows that God is good and that God is strong, that he is gracious, and that he's the power in my life. Paul says, in my weakness, weakness refers to a lack of strength in the original language. Just to break it down and simplify things for people, I want to just talk about a little bit of weakness this morning. There's, there's obviously physical weakness. When you think about what is it that I have to go through that Paul found joy in? What is it that God's grace is sufficient for in life? What is it that he shows himself strong when I am weak? Well, let's look at what weakness is. When you look at weakness, it can be physical weakness, mental weakness, emotional weakness, spiritual weakness. I think about times when your body gets tired and you need rest, sleep, food, water, there's physical weakness. Your body breaks down. You, you get infections and you get sickness in your life. It says infirmities in this scripture. That somehow we're able to still find the ability to rejoice in the Lord in these things. Mental weakness. Separated from emotional just a little bit to give us an idea. Sometimes we don't understand God's ways. Sometimes we don't understand relationships amongst each other. We have misunderstandings with others. We have misunderstandings with God. Sometimes we forget, we misinterpret, we misread, we misjudge, and we miss the point. In our weakness, he is made strong. Emotional weakness, like we're easily stressed, easily offended, we're worried, we have anxieties, fears, angers, depression, loneliness. In our weakness... He is made strong. 
spiritual weakness. You pray, but you never feel like it's enough. You're not even sure that you know how to pray. You don't know how to read God's word or you don't read enough. You love Jesus, but you don't fellowship with his people often enough. You aren't aware of how you're doing spiritually. You're not prepared for the spiritual battles ahead sometimes. Where we are weak, he is gracious. Where we are weak, he is strong. Paul, Paul adds at the end, I, I find it interesting, where he says that I am strong. That because that God gives him the strength, then where he is weak, he's really actually strong. How do we gain strength in those times? I think it's connected to the joy that he's able to find in those times. You know, most often we think of weakness as being bad, don't we? But weakness doesn't always have to equate to sin. Weakness is an opportunity to respond in faith and watch God make your imperfections valuable. In many ways, Paul faced imperfect people in imperfect situations at imperfect times. And it could probably have been viewed as as being one bad moment after another. Again, I think we condition ourselves to to brushing off the story of Paul because we think of him as being right next to Jesus. But when I think about Paul's life, if you read the chapters that led up to this, when he talks about being pressed down and persecuted, shaken, but not destroyed, when he talks about being stranded on an island, when he talks about going through depression in his life to where they just wanted their lives to end at one point. Paul mentions all of these things about his life. He wasn't just some, you know, super Christian with an SC on his shirt. He had all of these times in his life that we shouldn't just so easily brush those things aside because he is, quote, the apostle Paul, and that he could say this because he was a super Christian, that we have joy in all of these weak areas of life, these imperfect people and imperfect times and imperfect situations. Like even when Paul was doing good, you know what he had to face? Ridicule and persecution sometimes from his own people on multiple levels. Like I'm not stranded on an island. I didn't just almost drown in a raging sea. So life is pretty good in that sense right now. However, I'm sitting in jail and there's other Christians that are actually talking against me and about me and trying to run my ministry down right now. When I walk outside into a Gentile nation and I'm surrounded by a bunch of Jews who are the same nationality as me and the Jews want to kill me. Can you imagine that you get stuck in a Muslim country somewhere, 98% Muslim, and you run into a bunch of Americans and you think, oh, a people of my own kind, kill him, hang him, get him. You'd be like, what? This is Paul's life. 
the people of his own nation, of his original heritage and culture and faith, and now the new faith, Christianity. Like everywhere he's turned, there's battles that go on in his life. Don't think that the Apostle Paul for a second had it easy. And now add to that, that while he's going through all of these things from a, 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 a wreck in a ship, swimming in water, to times where he was hungry as could be, and then having the people that should embrace him turn against him, now he's got a thorn in his side. We don't even know what it is. And he's like, God, at least please take this thorn from me. It's made even all of these a little bit more challenging in my life. Can you get rid of it? And God says, no. It's there to humble you. Really? Like I'm not humbled enough? Every time I turn a corner and somebody's against me when people are writing stuff and preaching stuff and questioning who I am, what I do, my apostleship, I'm imperfect in people's eyes. And God says, my grace is sufficient. And Paul's like, okay, then here's where I learned to have joy. And then he begins to have joy. And he can say, that where I am weak, he is strong. And then he can go on and talk about rejoicing in those infirmities and then say, when I am weak, I am strong. Through all that Paul went through, understand, from the situations to the people to the timing, he never quit. He never stopped doing what God called him to do. He continued forward in ministry, and he never gave up hope. But he came to realize that true strength came through doing difficult things in difficult times. Because it was in those times that God's strength was made perfect in his imperfection. And the results are invaluable. The Christmas season, I want you to remember, we are God's homemade creation. Nothing is by accident. We are an imperfect people in imperfect situations at imperfect times. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know where we are less than perfect. We know about our attitudes. We know about our lies. We know where we've messed up. We know where we've made mistakes. We know where we have sinned. Paul, in a couple chapters prior to this, describes that we're but broken vessels. He is the potter, we are the clay. God's up there making us homemade vessels, easily broken, easily chipped. Sometimes we pretend to be strong, we pretend that we have it all together. We'll dress our vessel up make ourselves look better than we really are. But the truth is, when it's just us and God, we know we are imperfect. The imperfect life strengthened by God is more valuable than the life that gives the illusion of imperfection. This is Homemade Christmas. 
it shows the value of the imperfect. And this is what it means to have imperfect value.